Welcome to this Upila Audio presentation of The Boy Fortune Hunters in Panama by Floyd Akers. Volume 5, Chapter 11, Princess Ilala Leaning over the side of the machine, her chin resting upon her hands at the edge of the car, was the most beautiful girl I had ever seen. Her form was tall and slender, her features exquisitely regular in contour, and her eyes deep brown and soft as velvet. Her fleecy white tunic was without color save a broad band of green that formed a zigzag pattern around its edge, and her dark hair was twined a wreath of white blossoms with delicate green leaves. I noticed that her skin was almost white in the sunshine, the bronze hue being so soft as to be scarcely observable. She had not the same expression of sadness that seemed an inherited characteristic of her people, but gazed upward with a faint smile that showed her dainty white teeth, full at the face of Duncan Moit. When I appeared upon the scene, the inventor was sitting on the side of the car opposite the girl, returning her frank regard with a look of wonder and admiration. A little back stood a silent group of young women whose demeanor indicated they were the girl's attendants. Their eyes, I noticed, roved over the strange machine with eager curiosity. Chief Ogo uttered an exclamation of impatience and strode quickly forward. This is no place for you, my princess, he said, addressing the girl. You must retire at once to your rooms. She turned her head without altering her position and said in a calm, sweet tone, Does my lord Ogo command Ilala, then? When the king is not present, it is my duty to guard his women, he returned brusquely. With a contemptuous shrug as her only reply, she looked toward Duncan again, and as if continuing conversation already begun, she said to him in soft but awkward English, And shall it fly like a bird too? It can almost fly, but not quite, miss, he answered. But it swims like a fish. Yes, miss. And runs like a deer. Exactly, miss. It would please me if it did that, she remarked very gently. Duncan was puzzled for a moment. Then his face brightened and he said eagerly, If you will get in, I will take you for a ride, you and your three women. She did not hesitate at all, but turned and called three of the young women by name who came at once to her side. Ogo, the chief, who could not follow very well the English words, was scowling fiercely, but he had kept at a respectful distance since the girl had repulsed him. Enjoying his discomfiture, I promptly opened the door of the car and motioned the princess to enter. She ascended the steps lightly, and I pushed her attendants after her, for I scented a lark and wanted to prevent Ogo from interfering. I could see he was uncertain how to act, and the other bystanders were equally undecided. But no sooner had I jumped in after the women than Moit threw over the lever and started the engines, so promptly that the machine leapt forward with a bound. We circled the king's palace three times while the dainty princess clung to the back of her seat and laughed delightedly, and her women huddled together in abject terror. Every inhabitant flocked to the doors and windows to see us, 
nor could the natives control their amazement at our rapid flight. Then Duncan headed for the arched opening in the wall, and ignoring Ogo's wild shout to halt, darted through and out upon the plains. The chief instantly notched an arrow, but the princess sprang to her feet and faced him from the rear of the car so that he dared not shoot for fear of wounding her. Another moment and we were out of range, and now Duncan, inspired by a natural desire to show his fair passenger what his invention could do, increased the speed until the wind whistled past our ears and our eyes were not quick enough to note the objects we passed. I own that being a sailor myself, I was a little frightened at this terrific dash, but Alala laughed gleefully and cast a slim brown arm around Duncan's neck to steady herself as she gazed straight ahead and enjoyed to the full the excitement of the wild ride. There was no real danger, however. The meadows were as smooth as any highway, and in an incredibly short period of time, we were almost out of sight of the village. The thought now came to me that it would not be wise for us to offend Nalignad by carrying the prank too far, so I called to Duncan to return. Rather reluctantly, I imagined he described a great circle and headed at last for the village, never abating his speed, however, until we had flown through the archway and narrowly escaped, knocking over a dozen or so of the throng that had assembled in the enclosure. Around the king's palace we again sped, so as not to slacken our pace too abruptly, and then the inventor brought his wonderful machine to a halt in almost the same spot from whence we had started. We now observed Nalignad standing at the entrance to his dwelling, with Nux and Bryony on either side of him. Now that he stood upright, I saw that he towered far above all his people, and was, moreover, straight as a gun barrel. As soon as we halted, I opened the door and assisted the frightened attendants to reach the ground. Duncan, however, sprang out and gave his hand to Alala, who needed no such support. Her cheeks glowed pink through their rich tinting. Her eyes sparkled brightly, and there could be no question of her delight in her recent novel experience. As soon as her feet touched the ground, she ran to the king and seized his arm affectionately, crying aloud in her native tongue, Oh, my father, it is a miracle! The white man's wagon is alive and more fleet than an arrow! It is not the white man's wagon, said Bri quickly. It is our wagon, the wagon of kings, and the white man is a slave whose duty it is to make it go. A slave? Oh, I am so sorry! said Alala with disappointment. Why? her father asked, putting an arm around her. Because the white man is beautiful as a spirit, and he is good and kind, answered the princess. I laughed at the unconscious Duncan and nearly laughed outright. That the thin-faced, stooping, dreamy-eyed inventor could by any stretch of the imagination be called beautiful was as strange as it was amusing. But the girl was doubtless in earnest, and being so rarely beautiful herself, she ought to be a judge. The king was plainly annoyed at this frank praise of a hated white. He presented his daughter with much ceremony to Nux and Bryonia, and she touched their foreheads lightly with her fingertips, and then her own brow in a token of friendship. "'Will your majesty take a ride in our magic traveling machine?' asked Bry, with proud condescension. Not now, said the king, drawing back thoughtfully. Presently he walked close to the machine and eyed every part of it with great intentness. 
but it was clear that the thing puzzled him, as well it might, and he shook his grizzled head as if he despaired in solving the puzzle. Then he escorted the Maoris round his village, showing them the various huts and storehouses for fruits and grain, and while they were thus occupied, the princess came nearer and leaned again upon the side of the car, Moit and I being seated within it. If you are slaves, she said in a low voice, I will befriend you. Do not fear. But call on Alala if you meet trouble or enemies who threaten you. Thank you, sweet princess, replied Duncan. We may be slaves at present, but we shall soon be free. We feel no danger. She nodded brightly as if the answer reassured her, and walked away to enter the palace, her train of attendants following at a respectful distance. Ogo and his villagers stood several paces away, silent and motionless. When the king returned with his noble guests, he noticed the chief and at once dismissed him, telling him to return to his village and be vigilant until the visitors had departed from their dominions. Ogo promptly departed, but not without a final glance of hatred at the inventor and me. Then the king, with many expressions of friendship, retired into his palace, and Bry and Nux were again permitted to join us. Why don't we put up the top, I said quietly, so that we may talk without being overheard. We drew up the sections of the glass dome and fastened them in place, while the natives looked on with renewed curiosity. Then, quite alone, although we could see anything that happened around us, we sat at our ease and canvassed the situation. If you fellows had been with us, said Moyt, I would have run away with the princess and held her as hostage to secure our safe return to the ship. Would you have let her go then? I inquired mischievously. He did not deign to reply. We couldn't abandon Brian Knox, though, I continued more seriously, so there is nothing to regret. Bry seemed very thoughtful. We're in a bad box, Master Sam, he said in his broken English, which contrasted so strongly with the ease with which he expressed himself in his own tongue. That king is an old fox, sure enough, and won't let us go away from here to get the diamonds. He seemed to treat you and Knox very politely, I thought. It's all seeming, Master Sam, no bee. But isn't he friendly? Didn't he break bread with you? That don't amount to nothing, sir. If a friend lied to him, his friendship is broke. Well, Bry, then what? He know I lied to him. What makes you think so? He made a chalk mark. But how could he know you were lying? His people see our wrecked ship when we see them. They see from the trees me cooking breakfast, and Nux wait on the white folks. They see Master Duncan put the machine in the river, and we all ride away on it. Everything the king knows before we come and lie to him. He knows we find the body in the canoe, and bury the dead man in the river. He knows the dead man wanted diamonds, so he kill him. He think we want diamonds too, so he kill us if he can. This was indeed a gloomy prophecy. I had no doubt my man had put the exact truth clearly before us. Our folly in imagining we could so easily deceive these clever Indians was all too evident. I noticed that the late dad seemed suspicious and unbelieving, I remarked, after a period of silence during which we sat staring despondently into one another's faces. 
He was telling himself all the time, perhaps, that we were fools, and he had us in his power. Only once was he at all disturbed, and that was when Nux threatened to explode him and his people. He's not quite sure we cannot do that. Nor am I, said Duncan Boynt musingly. But they must know about firearms, and Maurice Klepish wrote in his book that they despise them, I observed. Firearms do not explode people. I did not refer to them, Moit returned. But tell me, if these natives are aware of our imposture, what is the use of keeping up the game? Let us get hold of that girl, make a dash for the diamonds, and then escape as best we can. Girl, I exclaimed as if surprised. Why would you want the girl when, as you say, we defy the natives and no hostage will be required? Moit looked confused. She knows the country, he said after a moment, and would make a good guide. Then he glanced up at me and added more honestly, She's very pretty and nice, Sam. She's a darling, Moit. I agree with you there, but it strikes me that to capture the princess and run away with her would stir up no end of rumpus. We can't run the machine through the tangled forests, so the only way to get back is by the river, the same way we came. King could assemble a thousand warriors to oppose us, and the chances are he'd win. Well, what are we to do? Fight it out? Of course. Got to fight anyhow, remarked Nux philosophically. And we may as well keep up the fable of our being slaves to Nux and Bry, I added. They may know a good deal by observation, but the chances are they have guessed a lot. So as long as we pretend to be two Maori kings and two white slaves, they don't have any good excuse for attacking us. During the afternoon, several of the chiefs arrived at the village, coming in one by one, as if from different parts of the country. All had more or less green in their robes, and they were a lot of remarkably shrewd and imposing-looking fellows. We decided that they had been summoned by the king to a conference a conference concerning us, for after pausing in the enclosure to take accurate note of our appearance and to study the queer machine in which we were seated, they passed on into the royal dwelling. Toward evening we prepared our supper, while many of the inhabitants came to watch us through our glass case. Presently one softly rapped upon the glass, and going to that place I saw a woman standing there holding out a basket made of rushes. I opened a window nearby and took in the basket. Hilala sends it to the big white slave, said the woman in her native dialect. The big white slave thanks Hilala and sends her his love in return, I answered, laughing. But she nodded and turned away with a serious countenance as if the message was no more than she'd expected. I handed the basket to Duncan and gave him the message of the princess. His face lightened up, and he blushed like a schoolboy, but made no comment. In the basket were some fresh eggs and a roasted fowl that resembled a pheasant in size and flavor. We cooked the eggs over our alcohol stove and blessed the girl for her thoughtfulness, for her contribution was a grateful addition to our tinned foods. As darkness came on, we lit our lamps and drew our curtains, and after a little further discussion as to our future actions, we lay down upon our blankets and prepared to pass a second peaceful night in the heart of the enemy's country. 
It must have been about midnight when I was awakened by a strange, crackling sound. For a moment I lay still, wondering what it could be. Then I sprang up and opened one of the little windows. Dense smoke was rising all around the automobile, and thrusting out my head, I saw a mass of flames underneath us. I drew back quickly, my eyes smarting from the smoke, and closed the orifice. The interior of the car was now dimly illumined by a dull red glow. Moit was sitting up when I reached out to touch him. What is it? he asked sleepily. They have built a great bonfire underneath us, I answered. Is it likely to do any damage? He shook his head. All the harm it could possibly do would be to melt the rubber of the tires. And as they are vulcanized, I do not believe any open fire would be powerful enough. But it may get rather close and warm for us to sleep. So we shall move on a bit. He reached for the lever and the machine started, and slowly moved over the blazing logs, bouncing us around somewhat, but creating no other discomfort. By raising the curtain in front, Duncan could see when we were a safe distance from the fire. So we stopped about twenty yards away, and we prepared to lie down again. Someone ought to stand watch, said the inventor. For if we are sound asleep while they are wide awake, they may get into more dangerous mischief than building bonfires. We cheerfully agreed this was a necessary precaution, and I was glad to find myself selected for the first watch, because by that time I had become as wakeful as an owl. When the others returned to their blankets, I settled myself comfortably on a seat and listened intently for the slightest sound that might indicate danger. Presently I heard another crackling, from which it appeared that our unseen foes had dragged the blazing logs toward us and were making another effort to burn our stout metal car. So I aroused Duncan, and this time we moved around to the other side of the enclosure, halting close to a wing of the king's house, for while the car itself might not burn, a good bed of coals under us could convert it into a frying pan, and we had no mind to sizzle and brown for the entertainment of the sand blaze. Perhaps it was a fear of setting the royal palace on fire that deterred our enemies from annoying us further, for after this second move we were not molested, and my comrades were allowed to finish their sleep in comfort. Chapter 12. War is Declared The next morning we made an unpleasant discovery. When we brought the automobile around to the front of the house again, we found that during the night the natives had bricked up the entrance arch to a height of some four feet above the ground, using blocks of baked clay cemented together with some preparation with which we were not familiar. This action was intended to imprison the automobile within the wall and prevent our running out on another excursion, as we had on the day before. At first sight, it appeared that the device was successful. A small hut had been torn down to provide the material, and the blocks were thick and hard as rock. Duncan frowned as he looked at the barrier and remarked, I guess this is to be war, then. I knew that last night, I said, when they tried to smoke us out and burn us up. Let us give them a good volley from our revolvers, he suggested angrily. Don't do that, sir, said Bry earnestly. Wait first till they shoot arrows at us. We might believe we're friends as long as we can. It gives us time to think what we do. 
Evidently, I said, the Council of Chiefs has advised the king to make short work of us. We have probably been condemned already, and all that holds them in check is their uncertainty of the best way to vanquish us. They are a little awed by our wonderful powers, I am sure, declared Moyd. Quite probably, I replied. Is there any way to get over that wall, Duncan? He did not answer at once, but looked reflectively at the archway. We can leave this place tomorrow morning, he said finally. But I do not see how we can accomplish that feat before then. Do you imagine we can hold the natives at bay another day? We can try, I said as cheerfully as I could. But the prospect was not an enticing one, and I began to bitterly regret our folly in ever entering a place wherein we could be so easily imprisoned. If we get out, said Knox, then we must fight our way all the time. If we're bold and quick, we can get away all right. Knox didn't speak very often, but his judgment was pretty good. I want those diamonds, I said, and I'm going to have them. If we go back empty-handed, this expedition has been a complete failure. To let a lot of ignorant natives triumph over the greatest invention of the century is absurd. It is criminal added Moy. I'm not afraid to tackle the whole Sambles nation in this car. Too bad you didn't make a man of war, I said with a laugh. If we had a Gatling gun aboard, we'd have everything our own way. We raised the curtains, and while Bry openly got the breakfast ready, I took careful note of the surroundings. Some twenty warriors armed with spears and bows were in sight, lounging in doorways or leaning silently against the various buildings. They were watching us closely, no doubt, but there was no open attempt to attack us as yet. After a brief conference, we decided not to put down the top again, as the Sambles might take a notion to shoot at any time, and their arrows, while they might not penetrate the netted glass of the dome, might mow us down quickly if we were exposed to them. But I did not like to acknowledge that we were afraid either. So I let down the steps and opened the rear door, and Brian, Nux, and myself all descended to the ground and grouped ourselves carelessly near the car, leaving Moit alone in the machine. As soon as we appeared, the natives began to come nearer in a curious, observant crowd. Then one who was doubtless a chief came forward and said that the king, Nalig Nad, desired his brother kings to attend him at once in the palace. In our country, answered Bry gravely, it's the custom when kings meet to honor each other in turn. Yesterday we waited upon Nolig Ned. Today he must wait upon us. But he is the great king of the Teclas, protested the other, as if amazed that the command could be disregarded. And we are the mighty kings of Tayaku, which numbers more people than the leaves of the forest replied Bry, drawing himself up proudly and frowning upon the other. Take your master or answer, slave. The fellow obeyed, but the king was in no hurry to come. His daughter arrived, though, fresh and beautiful as a rose in bloom, and the natives made way for her as she pressed through the group. A greetings to my friends, she said in English, and peered into the car in search of Duncan Moyd. Enter, princess, I said, holding open the door. 
She accepted the invitation frankly, and Duncan took her hand and pressed it to his lips, as an old-time courtier would have done. She was very sweet and lovely, this Indian maiden, and I did not blame the inventor for worshipping her, as he evidently did. You cannot today with me run away, she said, laughing and pointing a slender finger at the barricade. You are wrong, Ilala, answered Moit, smiling into her fair face. When I wish to go, the walls cannot stop me. But we would like to stay another day in your village. She became serious at this. Thinking someone in the crowd might understand the English language as well as she did, she motioned to Nux and Bride to enter the car, and I followed them and closed the door. Listen, then. My father is angry because you have told lies to him. There was a council of the chiefs last night. The white men are to be captured and shot with arrows. The magic machine that is a bird and a fish will be destroyed. But the two kings may then go free because they speak in our tongue and are therefore brothers. That is pleasant news, said Duncan. When will they do this? Today, if they can. I was with them at the council. I told them I loved you and would make you the mate of the princess Alala. But to that my father would not agree. He says you must die. Duncan took her hand and kissed it again very gratefully, and with a look of joy and animation upon his face that fairly transformed it. Didn't any of that make you afraid? I asked the girl, surprised she seemed to accept her lover's cruel fate so lightly. Oh, no, she replied, for the white chief I love is greater than the sun blaze. He will save himself and fly and I will go with him. Will you? cried Duncan earnestly. Why not? she asked frankly. Will the doe leave the stag she has chosen? Could I be happy or content without my white chief? Here is a case of love at first sight with a vengeance, I said, greatly amused at the girl's bold declaration. But Moit frowned upon me angrily, eyes flashing. Shut up, you pig, he growled. And suddenly I felt ashamed of myself for not better appreciating the maiden's brave honesty. Is there no way, Elala, to make your father wait until tomorrow morning? He asked, turning again toward the girl. Why should he wait? She returned. I have summoned mighty powers to my assistance, declared Moit after a moment's thought, and it would please me to await their arrival. It will make me stronger. But I am not afraid if your people begin the war at any time. And tomorrow morning? Then at daybreak you must come to me, and we will go away and leave your people. That is good, she said joyfully. I will try to make my father wait, and tomorrow I will give up my power to go with my white chief. What is your power, Elala? asked Duncan, puzzled by the expression. After my father, I am the ruler of the Teclas which you call the Sad Blaze. When the king dies, I am queen, with power of life and death over my people. But the king, my father, hates white men, who may not live if they enter his kingdom. So I must go with my mate to another country where the king does not hate him, or to his own country where he will rule. This willing abdication of a throne for the sake of a man who she barely had known for a day aroused my wonder. But I could not fail to admire the girl's courage, and indeed, to rule the sand blaze was no great privilege in my estimation. 
If your father makes war today, said Duncan, fly here to me at once. Then, if I escape, we will never more be separated. She promised readily to do this, and leaving the car, rejoined her women and moved away to enter the palace. I noticed that while she had abandoned all her life, her prejudices, and her kingdom for her white lover, Duncan Moyt had promised nothing in return except that they would never be separated. The thought made me sorry for the poor maiden, but it was none of my affair. By and by the kings came out, followed by his chief men and counselors in an imposing group. As he approached, Brian Knox again descended from the car and stood by the steps, and I followed and took up a position just behind them. Duncan, as before, remained inside. We were all prepared to act quickly in an emergency, but our plan was to secure a truce in some way until another morning. I could not understand why Moit desired the delay so earnestly, but I was willing to assist him to obtain it. The king was plainly annoyed at the refusal of the Maori kings to come into his dwelling. His face still wore its calm expression, but his eyes snapped ominously. My brothers, he said, we do not like your white slaves. Years ago, the whites wronged the Teknos most cruelly, and the law of our nation was to put all white people to death who enter our country. I am sorry to take away your property, but those slaves must die. My brother, answered Bry, see how much more we love you than you love us. We could kill you in a flash, even where you stand. We could destroy your village and all your people. If we so desired, there would be no more a nation of Teclos on the face of the earth. But we let you live, because we have called you our friend. To break that friendship would be to destroy yourselves. I beg you will not ask us to give up our slaves to your cruel and unjust vengeance. It did me much good to watch the Lignaz's face. He did not like to risk defying the unknown power of the strangers. But if his own authority was thus ignored, he would hereafter be a king only in name. Some of his chiefs were glancing at one another significantly, while others were clearly uneasy at our domineering attitude. I stood with my hands in the pockets of my jacket and a grin of amusement on my face when the king's roving eyes suddenly observed me. I suppose his forbearance could not withstand the white boy's audacity, for he raised his hand, and at the signal, coil of rope shot through the air and a loop settled over my body clutching me firmly around the chest instantly i was jerked from my feet and dragged into the group of warriors all of whom as if the action had been preconcerted sprang forward with spears leveled threateningly at nux and bry chapter 13 we look into danger's eyes the capture was so sudden it took me a moment to collect my wits. Although bruised and bumped to some extent, I had not been much hurt, and even before I was jerked to my feet, I cried aloud to my men, Get into the car! Watch out! Don't mind me! Take care of yourselves! They obeyed promptly, but none too soon, for scarcely had they closed the door when a shower of arrows rattled against the dome. All subterfuge and arbitration was now at an end. They had at last shot the arrow, and we might expect in the future nothing but implacable hatred. My captors, two stalwart chiefs, having raised me to my feet now, 
held me firmly secured by means of the thong lasso which still encircled my body. The coils pinioned my elbows so closely to my sides I could not even withdraw my hands from the pockets of my jacket. They had begun to hurry me toward the king's house when a roar of dismay broke from the group we had just left. I turned half around and saw that the automobile had made a short circle and was plunging straight at the king and his warriors. Some were wise enough to scatter from its path, but the more dignified hesitated and were bowled over like a company of wooden soldiers and tossed in every direction. The lightness of the machine prevented many serious casualties, however, and while Duncan chased them here and there, managing the huge automobile with consummate skill, the warriors gathered up the stunned and maimed, and dodging the onslaught as nimbly as they could, fled into the palace and houses where the terrible monster could not follow them. Forgetting for a moment my own unenviable plight, I laughed heartily at the exhibition until two chiefs pushed me roughly toward the doorway, and so along the narrow hall and into the big courtyard. Here the chiefs began to gather, muttering angrily at their recent discomfiture, and casting glances upon me, glances of such malignance that they had the effect of sobering me effectually. The king came limping in and dropped upon his bench with a brow like a thundercloud. He had not been much injured, but his royal dignity had suffered a severe blow. While one man held the loose end of my lasso and guarded me, the others all ranged themselves back of the king, who said with what appeared to me to be unseemly haste, What shall be the fate of this white stranger? Death! they cried in a fierce chorus. And at once, added Nalignad. He glanced around him. You, Tetsa, I allow you the privilege. A stout young fellow with considerable royal green in his robe stepped forward with a grim smile and drew his long knife. As I looked at him, I clutched with my fingers the handles of the two self-cocking revolvers that were fortunately in my jacket pockets, and which I had been secretly holding when the coil of the lasso settled over me. I was not able to move my arms because of the thong that pressed them against my body, but I pointed the barrel of the right-hand weapon as accurately as I could toward my proposed executioner. When he was but a few paces off, I blazed away at him. At the first shot, he paused as if astonished. At the second, he threw up his arms and tumbled over. Instantly, I whirled and fired at the man behind. My position was so awkward, though, and my aim so uncertain that I emptied the chambers of the revolver in quick succession to make sure at least one bullet would take effect. He staggered back and released the thong, and even while I loosed the slipknot, I ran toward the hall and made my best speed for the door. The thong tripped me as it dropped to my feet, and I fell just in time to escape a spear that was hurled after me. Another, as I jumped up, slipped past my right ear, and the third slashed my hip, but I fled for dear life, and in a jiffy was free of the house and heading across the enclosure toward the automobile. They saw me coming and opened the door for me to tumble in. A spear crashed into the netted glass just as the door swung into place again. It was hurled with such force that its point stuck halfway into the car and taught us that we were not quite so secure within the dome as we had imagined. 
but now I lay panting about the floor while Bryonia emptied a couple of revolvers into the crowd of my pursuers and brought them to an abrupt halt. Getting a little warm, remarked Duncan quite calmly. I'm not sure, Sam, whether we can stick out the day or not. Glad you skied, Master Sam. Bad hurt? said Knox, bending over me. I guess not, I answered, still breathing hard. The Maori unfastened my clothing, which was saturated with blood, just over the left hip. The spear had cut an angry-looking gash in the flesh, as a passing reminder of what it might do if better aimed. But fortunately the wound was not deep, and on account of its location, would cause me little trouble beyond a slight stiffness. Nux began to dress it as well as he could by tearing up a shirt for bandages and applying plenty of sticking plaster from the supply we had brought with us. I thought he had made a very good job of it, being somewhat skilled in the treatment of flesh wounds myself. I can imagine how furious Sanblaze would be at my escape. They did not venture out into the open space after these two repulses, but hung around the doorways in an alert and vigilant way, being very sure we could not get out of the enclosure and would be unable to defy them for any length of time. Duncan rather expected the princess to appear, as she had promised, in case of open warfare, but either she did not consider the emergency had yet arisen, or she had been prevented from acting as she wished. Uh, we look go without her, he muttered decidedly. Could you please tell me what's your object in waiting until tomorrow before escaping from here? I can't see that another day will bring any better conditions to our captivity, and it's pretty obvious that we can't get the machine out of this enclosure in any event. Perhaps I ought to explain, he began, and then he paused for a long time as if absorbed in deep thought. Take your time, Duncan, I remarked impatiently. He missed my sarcasm entirely, but my voice roused him and he said, Perhaps you remember that I once told you I used a glycerin explosive of my own invention to prime the engines of this automobile. In starting, a tiny drop is fed into the cylinders to procure the air compression which furnishes the motive power. I remember. Yeah, go ahead. The feeding chamber is supplied with enough of this explosive to run the machine a year or more. But when I made it in my own laboratory, the apparatus required was so complicated and expensive, I decided to manufacture an extra supply to use in other machines, which I intended to build later. Okay. This reserve supply in a powerfully concentrated form I now have with me. Uh, isn't that kind of dangerous? I asked, glancing around uneasily. Properly applied, it might blow old Panama to atoms, he returned vaguely. But it cannot be accidentally exploded while it remains in the place I have provided for it. Where's that? He reached down and removed a square trap in the floor of the car. Leaning over, I discovered a small cylindrical jar having the capacity of about a quart, which was suspended at one side of the driving shaft. The straps had held it in place, allowing it to swing in any direction with the movement of the machine. It appeared that any sudden jar would be impossible for it. Is that like nitroglycerin, I asked, eyeing the cylinder with an involuntary shudder. Oh, not at all, replied the inventor, calmly closing the trap again. 
it is much more powerful in its concentrated form, but it may be diluted when its strength desired. The mechanism I have invented for its application renders it perfectly harmless when exploded in atomic quantities in the engines, although ordinary concussion would, as in the case of nitroglycerin, explode the condensed contents of the extra cylinder. I think I see your idea now. Yes, it is very simple. Under the cover of darkness, I propose to bore a hole in that barrier, fill it with my explosive. In the morning, I will blow up the wall, and in the excitement that follows, run the machine through the gap and escape. That's fantastic, I exclaimed joyfully. So all we need to do is keep these Indians at bay until we have the opportunity to do the job. Otherwise, he said musingly, I would have to throw some of the explosive at the wall, and that attempt might prove as dangerous for us as for the fierce Samblaise themselves. The Indians seemed for some time unwilling to resume the attack. It was the middle of the afternoon before the king sent a message from his council chamber to say that all friendship had now ceased, and we must consider ourselves completely in his power. If the Senator Nux and the Honorable Bryonia would leave the village alone and on foot, the Lignad would guarantee their safety to the border, and thus they would be permitted to escape. The white men and their devil machine were doomed, though, and could in no way survive the vengeance of the Teclas. And unless Nux and Bry abandoned us at once, they would perish along with us. This proposition enabled us to gain the desired respite. Bryonia pretended to consult with Nux, and then answered the messenger that they would decide the matter at daybreak the following morning. At that time, the final answer of the two kings would be given to the Lignad, and they intimated that they might possibly decide to abandon the miserable whites and save their own skins. Whether this proposition was satisfactory or not, the king and his council did not appear, but the San Blaise evidently decided to wait, for they did not molest us the rest of that day. As night approached, we were somewhat worried lest they should resume the attempts to burn us, but they must have been satisfied of the impossibility of such a proceeding. No bonfires were lit, which suited our plans admirably. The moon, however, was brilliant during the first part of the night, and by its rays we could see that watchers were maintained in several places, so we were unable to do more than restrain our impatience as best we could. Moit raised the trap and carefully removed the cylinder that contained the explosive from its suspended position. He then placed it on the seat beside him. The very sight of the thing filled me with terror, and both Nux and Bry moved as far away as it was possible, as if that would do any good if it went off. But the inventor had handled it so often that he did not fear it as we did, and taking an empty glass bottle that was about as big around as your little finger, he unscrewed the cap of the cylinder and calmly filled the bottle from its contents. I watched him as if entranced, and thought the liquid resembled castor oil in color and consistency. When the bottle was filled, Duncan recorked it and put it into his inside pocket. Afterwards, he replaced the cylinder and strapped it into place. And now he rummaged around in his box of tools and took out a brace and a long bit that was about a half inch in diameter. He also picked out a piece of red chalk, which he also placed in his pocket. We were now all ready, but we had to wait, although the strain began to tell upon our nerves. 
Finally, the moon passed behind the king's house and sank so low that the building cast a black shadow over the entire enclosure, throwing both the automobile and the barricaded archway into intense darkness. In an hour, day will be breaking, whispered Duncan in an anxious voice. We must work quickly now, or we are lost. He started the machine, moving so slowly that it merely crept toward the wall. The watchers had doubtless retired, for we heard no sound of movement in the sleeping village. When we had approached quite near the barricade, Moyd softly opened the rear door, left the car, and crawled on hands and knees to the wall. We showed no light at all, and from the automobile I lost sight of our friend altogether. But presently I could hear the faint sound of the auger as it ground its way into the clay wall. Duncan started at about the middle of the barricade, but bored his hole slanting downward so that the explosive would run into the cavity without danger of escaping. It did not take him more than a few minutes to complete the task, and before long he was back in the car again, holding the empty bottle before our faces with a smile of satisfaction. And now the machine crept inch by inch back to its former position, and we were ready for the day to break.